Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another episode of Moving to Live. We have part two with Don Moxley. Don is a sports scientist with the Ohio State University wrestling team and a true example of an exercise physiologist. Don's area of expertise is human monitoring and monitoring of physiological and psychological variables and how they pertain to performance. I think that Don has a really good outlook on the future of human performance and data collection and not only just data collection, but use of data. And I think one of the things that everybody needs to think about if they are going to go into the movement field is something that Don said in his bio form. It's easy to love the process of athletic preparation. The issue is that there's a very low barrier of entry into the field. It's crowded and getting more difficult to make a living. How you differentiate yourself from the rest of individuals is going for the same job. How you provide a unique level of service that is valued enough to provide you a living that can sustain you. And I think that last part, how do you differentiate yourself and how do you provide a unique level of service is something that everybody who is serious about the field and cognizant of the changes needs to think about. So Don, I want to thank you for joining uh, Moving to Live for part two. Uh, I'm excited to be here. So that quote that I just read from you, I think if anybody looks at your bio or listen to part one, you have done your best, whether consciously or subconsciously, to differentiate yourself from other exercise physiologists because what you're doing, I think, is quite unique. And you described a little bit in the first podcast episode how you got involved again with Ohio State University a number of years after you had finished your wrestling career. You're now back with the wrestling team. And I understand from surfing the internet, you were had the good fortune or bad fortune to finish second in the NCAAs, finishing up on Saturday. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. <laughs> yeah. We finished second and we were one match away from a national title. So it's like, 
uh, our expectations have have risen dramatically here. So listen, we're grateful. It was a, we had eight All Americans. We had a great performance, but we were literally we went forty and sixteen in the tournament with the ten guys that were there. If we win forty one matches, we're national champs. I think the two things that I was able to catch from following it on the internet is uh, number one, you were the highest scoring second place team in history. And yeah, a score that would have won nationals most of the time. And the second thing is I was on YouTube and watching some interviews of some of the wrestlers that won. And I think it was your heavyweight wrestler was sounded very excited that now he can wrestle people who are in his own weight class. Since I guess he's been (laughs) wrestling people who are 40 or 50 pounds heavier than him. Yeah, Kyle Snyder, um, he was uh, an Olympic gold medalist for the United States in Rio, and he wrestles 97 kilograms internationally, which is, he weighs in at about 213 pounds. But in NCAA wrestling, the highest weight class is 197. Uh, So that means anywhere from 197, and the cap on heavyweight is 285. So um, he had a really good competitor from the University of Michigan, a guy by the name of Adam Kuhn. Adam, we're pretty sure Adam was cutting a little weight to make 285. Um, and, you know, he's not just a big dude. I mean, when I wrestled, you know, I, I walked around about 285, 290, but there wasn't a cap. So there was time to time I'd grab a hold of a 400 pounder. Um, rarely did you grab a 400 pounder that couldn't have lost 150 of that. Um, but um, when you grab a hold of Adam Kuhn, there's a lot of lean mass there. Um, so Kyle really had to have it buttoned down to make it work for him. And I think you've touched on this, that things are changing. The technology is changing and that's where you come into place with your work at uh, the Ohio state with the wrestlers. So for people who maybe haven't heard the first podcast, or maybe they have, and are kind of curious, what exactly does a sports scientist do when they work with an individual NCAA team? So what I do is it's evolved, but I create systems that measure human performance. Um, so we look, we work in four domains. We, uh, body comp, which is uh, body composition, like lean mass, fat mass, um, but also daily weight, looking at weight change, understanding the impact of dehydration and its impact on, um, on performance. But the first domain is body comp. The second domain is cardiovascular fitness. The third domain is strength and power, and the fourth domain is what we call readiness, um, which is a measurement of the central nervous system, looking at factors primarily driven out of the assessment of heart rate variability. Um, So those four domains are are where we work. I measure about 150 variables from all of those domains. Um, This year, we'll collect about 3.5 million data points um, on on our team um, that – so that's that's the the front end of it, but then I have to take all that information and form it into reports and the feedback that coaches and athletes can use to make better decisions. Um, so you know what you're trying to do, you know, at the at the at the top of the pyramid is behaviors. Behaviors is we want our athletes engaging in the right kind of behaviors. Um, behaviors usually come from decisions they make. Decisions drive behaviors. And the thing that drives decisions a lot of time is culture. So culture, and, and they respond to the culture. And then when you have enough behaviors, that becomes culture. So if you think about that as the circle, behaviors drive culture, culture drives decisions, decisions drive behaviors. 
So when you want to improve your behaviors, change the culture, how do you do that? So what are the data points that we can inject into the process that give the individual or the coach the ability to make a different decision that leads to a better behavior, which eventually modifies your culture? This is the process that we drive. And, and so sports science is provide, you know, pulling the, the relevant information um, figuring out what information is relevant first. Um, you know, a lot of times on the, in the strength domain and, and I have two strength coaches and, and neither one of them are like this, but you know, you go hire a strength coach and you ask them to put together a program and you come in and the first exercise they do is they go over and lay down on a bench press. Um, well, we've, we've measured it and, and bench pressing predicts nothing for us. Um, uh, it's, it's a valueless exercise for me, frankly. Um, what predicts performance deadlifts and squats. Um, so when we start looking at our programming, I want a programming that's built around what makes a difference. And if guys want to bench press too, that's great. I don't want to take anything away from it, but I want my culture, my behaviors to be driven by things that make a difference. Um, you know, cardiovascular fitness, everybody thinks wrestling's an anaerobic sport. Well, wrestling's a cardiovascular sport. You're, the size of your cardiovascular system predicts success for us at a huge correlation. And it, it's our strongest correlation we measure. Um, so understanding cardiovascular fitness and how it underlies anaerobic energy production and its re relationship to that is a concept that we've got to communicate to our guys that you can't train with your face on fire all the time. You've got to do the base work. Um, so that's what sports science does measure the relative factors so that athletes and coaches can make better decisions. I think one question that immediately comes to mind with that, uh, circle that you talked about is the culture. And obviously as a team becomes more successful and a, as a head coach has expectations and the assistants and the people who work under him have expectations, it's possible if they have the right expectations that the culture improves. But how do you balance the input from everything else surrounding collegiate wrestlers who are involved in the college lifestyle? Well, this again, we're measuring inputs and behaviors. So this is actually one of the transitions we're making into next year's program that up until now, I started working with his team back in 2015. Um, we had one wrestler that was struggling. Uh, I did an assessment. We figured out that he was maladapting to his training program. We had to change the inputs. I had to change the training he was doing to get the reaction. But that part of those inputs are recovery. What are, what, what's happening in the 21 hours of the day that I don't have this athlete with me dictates their ability to recover from the work that we're giving. So we're now going to start to switch to measuring behaviors, educating on the value. Listen, if I've got an athlete that has bad sleep, we're screwed. Um, you can't fix bad. You can't train with bad sleep. Um, you have to have it for recovery. You can't supplement it. You can't train around it. You have to fix that. Sleep is a behavior. Athletes have to make decisions that lead to behaviors. That decision might be, do I go out with my buddies? Do I invest in this process? How do I run my life? What are my, what are my priorities? Helping them under recognize that 
that that that athletics, academics, and lifestyle are not three separate buckets. They they pour into the same bucket and help them understand that you when you make a decision that drives a behavior, it's going to affect performance. Um, so that's the big thing we're changing our program this year is that right now I'm collecting a lot of data on, on, I'm collecting a lot of outputs next year. We're moving to where we're collecting the inputs, uh, more understanding of what's going, uh, when you lift, what do you do when you sleep? How do you do it? When you eat, what, how, what's the process we're, we're flipping over to that a little bit more than we are just looking at the outputs. This is probably one of the few, if not the only, uh, team in the United States that's doing something like this. Am I correct in saying that? You know, I don't know. I don't know. No, I, you know, listen, I know Penn state is working with a group that understands heart rate variability. Um, I think they've got a really good sports psych program. Listen, I think anybody who's performing at a high level probably has some version of what we do. Um, I, I, I do know there's some things that we're doing that no one else is doing yet. But, you know, the question is, is where are your weaknesses? You know, this is bleeding edge kind of stuff right now. This is, you know, this is frontier kind of work. So I think there's other people in this space. Um, but we we do have kind of a unique way we're doing it. And I may be the only one that's talking about it. Everyone else is keeping it trade secret. What you're describing, I can imagine a lot of coaches are listening to this or a lot of athletes are listening to this and they're saying, well, the coach says what happens. How do you get the buy-in from the coach or how did you end up in this situation where you're able to monitor and you described where you were changing an individual athlete's training program because he was not adapting correctly? I mean, this is something you think about wrestling. It's a team sport. We all do this. Yeah, well, you, you'll get the buy-in from the coaches when you're able to provide information that makes a difference, and they're able to see it. Um, again, if you're a strength coach, you go in and 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 you're a dogma-based strength coach. I mean, you've got your program, and this is what you do, and this is part of your gig. Um, uh, you bring that into a team, and and you have the variation of the team and the training. All of a sudden, your dogma may not be good enough. Um, when so the coach came to me. I told him what was going on. You make these adjustments. He made the adjustments and we had a kid go from struggling to all American. So all of a sudden I got, you know, I had a lot of coaches buying into my voodoo at that time. Um, and then we went one more year, got some more assets and I was able to show them a variable that predicted success. Um, when you look at RMSSD of HRV, it predicts success for us. And, and for people who are not listening, could you just briefly describe what both of those are? Yeah. So HRV refers to what's called heart rate variability. So we're measuring the time between heartbeats. And you can do this now with a $70 heart rate transmitter and a free app on your phone. It's very accessible. 10 years ago, it cost 40000 bucks to get the equipment to do this. It's now incredibly accessible. Um, so we're measuring time between heartbeats. The greater the variability in that time between heartbeats, the more you're in recovery. The less time, uh, the less variability in that time, the more you're in stress. Um, the more you're in stress, if you're in stress, you, you can't be in stress and in recovery at the same time. Um, it's one or the other. So there's times you want to be in stress. There's times when you want to be in recovery, we can measure whether you're there or not. That's the big deal. So 
the RMSSD that I talked about is what's called the root mean square of, of, of we're basically taking the root mean square of those values of, that, are, that have been standardized. And this tells you what's called vagal tone. So you got a big nerve in your body that's called the vagus nerve. And it controls a lot of the stress response in your organs. Well, it controls all of it, actually. Um, but the activity of that nerve tells you, are you in recovery or are you in stress? Um, and that's what you get from that value. And so as we, we did some work with the guys, I, I look at the data and I go back and I say, well, here's your highest value. That's your Olympic gold medalist. And here's the second highest. That's a two-time Olympian. And your third highest is a national champ. And your fourth highest is third in the country. And oh, by the way, at this level here is where we predict whether you can make all American status or not. Um, and it's predictable. When you show that to a coach, they listen. And I'm assuming this predictability is based on past work that you've done with wrestlers. Yeah, what we do. So one of the cool things that we do that's that's nice is that. So I've got a great wrestling room to work with. I have a room that that I we have Kyle Snyder, who we talked about, is arguably the best pound for pound wrestler on the face of the earth. May go down as the best wrestler ever. Is is literally what this guy is 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 on track to do. I've got this guy in my room. He's a great guy and he gives me full access to him so I can do lots of measurements. I have, you know, we have eight, all, we have eight all Americans. I'm trying to think, do I have enough? No, I have, I have two more all Americans in my room. So I have 10 all Americans. I have three world championships. I have an Olympic gold medal. Um, so I've got this very elite group of guys that we can measure. Then I've got a group of guys that are good wrestlers, but they've not made all American status yet. So they've made our lineup, but they've not made all American status yet. And then I've got a group of wrestlers who haven't cracked our lineup yet. So I've got these three groups. Well, I can then take all the measurements that we do and we correlate what we do against that. And we, okay, is there a difference between a one and a three? Again, in a bench press, there's no difference. In fact, it's probably inversely correlated. The guy with the bench press probably needs to be doing something different. Um, but, um, but we can look at what are the, what are the, what's the, what are the outputs that predict success and, and HRV is a really powerful predictor. And you mentioned the first wrestler that kind of got you started down the rabbit hole with the wrestling team, how he went from a relatively low level to an all American. How long did that change take place? <laughs> I modified nine workouts. Um, that was what was crazy about that, that, that they, you know, they brought him to me late in the year. Um, we identified the issue. Um, we, we threw controls in more than we threw training in. Um, but we modified not, the, 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 the work with him was modification of nine workouts. So is that would be correct to say that's less than two weeks? Uh, it took place over about a three week period. Which kind of, uh, yeah, which, which kind of, which kind of brings in the thing that people always talk about uh, that elite athletes ride that razor edge of the knife between being overtrained and undertrained. Yeah. I don't use the term overtraining anymore. Um, so I use the term maladaption. Um, once someone makes the decision and we, and, and Ohio state wrestling gives them permission to come into our room my assumption is this person wants excellence. They want to be elite. Um, I don't think someone, I don't think someone comes into the program and starts out thinking, I want to be Joe bag of donuts. I just want to be in the room that I don't think that happens. And if it does, 
that person will 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 self select out eventually, and that kind um, of kind of relays into the culture that's been created there. Yeah, we've got good culture, and and you know what. <sighs> I get real frustrated with parents and coaches talking about, you know, quote unquote, wanting it. Um, I don't think anyone shows up to practice. I don't care if, you know, I used to coach sixth grade field hockey. Um, none of those girls showed up not wanting it. Um, no one walks into my wrestling room, not wanting it, needing to be tougher. I don't, I don't know what tougher is. Um, until you can put a metric on it and we can predict its change and you can modify your inputs to modify that output, that word doesn't mean it's kind of like, oh, I want to tone up. What, what the hell is that? Um, I want to get stronger. I want to be more powerful. I want a higher lean mass. I want a lower fat mass. Those are all things that are predictable and measurable. Um, so toughness in my mind is uh, someone's inability to understand what they need to do next. So it's kind of a bailout term. Um, I don't, I absolutely refuse to accept that, that if there's, if there's, if there's an element that's struggling, if there's an athlete that's struggling, it's my job to analyze what's going on and figure out what needs, what is the input that needs to change? Um, and the more we understand this, um, the, the, the more we understand this, the more we start to pull in the whole lifestyle of the athlete and what's going on. Not just, not just three sets of 10 or two sets of five or, you know, you know, something, something as simple as that. It's one in four girls, one in six boys are being sexually molested now by the time they're 18, or there's some event that can be classified as that, that changes that athlete's ability to respond to stress. If you use language in your practice that elicits that fear response from that athlete, you change their ability. I call it their angle of recovery. I want my athletes to come out of practice with as shallow an angle of recovery as possible. I want them to come out so they're able to, we know you apply the stress, we get the, the hormesis, we have a, we have a turn down in the system with recovery, we get super compensation. So I want that angle as shallow as possible. If I use language that's inappropriate, I steepen the angle and I, and I, and I make it more difficult for that athlete to come back the next day and be prepared for the next bout of training. So you have to understand, is this athlete ready for the session I'm, I've prepared for them? And if they're not ready, what is the problem? What is going on? It's, it has nothing to do with your freaking bench press program or your squats, your curls, your cleans or anything else. It has everything to do with this athlete's readiness and the holistic nature of that ability, that individual's ability to respond to what you're getting ready to do. There's a little bit of soapbox there. Sorry about that. In a nutshell, what you're saying is there needs to be a flexibility in the training program because what you have planned for training based on how recovered they are may not be appropriate. They may be maladapting. Um, you've got to recognize that if you apply a force and they come back and you don't get the reaction, then there's a, then you have, then that's a maladaption. They did not adapt the way you expected them to. Um, it's not overtraining. It's not overtraining. This is, and as, as a, 
as a professional, I think this is something young professionals really need to pay attention to. There's not a coach out there that's going to be excited about you coming and saying to them, hey, you're overtraining your athletes. Okay. You're going to lose your job pretty fast when you say that. Um, but when you come to the coach and say, I think if we modify what's going on with this, here's the data I'm seeing. These guys are degrading over time when they should be improving. When you use data to show the coach, you're getting the inverse reaction to what is expected. Then the coach will respect you and listen to you. Um, but if you're going to the coach and saying, well, I think you're overtraining them. And the coach says, why? Well, you're it's that's a bad that's a bad conversation <laughs> how difficult is it with 30 plus athletes to have this uh measurement protocol going on because that's 30 athletes with multiple measurements for each athlete it's not that hard when you get systems in place this is one of the nice things that's going on is that you're seeing technology improve so we we use omega wave in our room with our athletes we're in a partnership with the air force research lab out of uh um Right, Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. So a lot of our data is a lot of our data is flying over there, is flowing over to the Strong Lab, and they also work with the Elite Warriors, the Navy SEALs, and Delta Force, and the Green Berets, and all the Air Force guys. Um, so we're in a partnership with them, and they've provided us with some wonderful assets, and and we use Omega Wave, we use heart rate systems, we use a lot of this, but I'm not making thirty different decisions. What I'm doing is I'm looking for outliers. I'm, I'm, I'm running my training process. I'm running my assessment process. And I'm looking for kids that are giving me the, 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 the maladaptive signal. I'm looking for the kid that's not adjusting. Once I find the kid that's not adjusting, you know, if you think about this from a statistical standpoint, 67.3 of them are within the first standard deviation. They're probably going to be fine. Now I'm going to start to think about the, you know, the, the ones in the tail to the left of the, of the mean. Um, but for most of them, it's going to be fine. Um, there's going to be about 15% of your population that's, that's not going to get the training load. Kyle Snyder needs a different training load than my mean guy. I mean, he's, he's my third standard deviation guy on the right-hand side. But I'm really looking for that second and third standard deviation person on the left-hand side of the mean on a particular variable. Who is not responding correctly? And obviously the mean moves and, and you have regression to the mean, but you're looking for, that's the reason we put standards in place. Who's not, you know, whether, you know, from a strength standpoint, a cardio, so we're not always working with means, we're able to use standards. That's the other reason I do that. For, for those listeners who listened to uh, part one of the podcast two weeks ago, what you're describing is the second and third uh, deviation to the left. That would have been you, your first two years of your wrestling career, correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, uh, that was me. I, I, yeah, I lived that. That's really good. <laughs> You've described what you're doing at the Ohio State University with wrestling, which based on your performance, you are an elite program. How realistic is this for a smaller program? I'm thinking this could be beneficial for sports teams at the high school level or the college level. What's the equipment outlay to do, maybe not at the same level, but uh, at some level where they can start to incorporate this? It's actually really accessible now. So you can go buy a heart rate transmitter good enough to do this. And not all heart rate transmitters will do what you're trying to do here. Um, but if you go buy a Polar H7 or a Polar H10, I actually recommend the H10. It's a little bit more expensive, but it has what's called memory. Um, you can go buy a Polar H10 for about 80 bucks. And you can, and an individual can get uh, a free app 
Elite HRV is a free app. You have that transmitter. Uh, everyone has a smartphone and you load that app. You're in the process. Um, then the elite HRVs have the ability to scale up so you can, uh, they have a team product that you can pay, you know, a, a little additional fee and a coach can see all this data and they coordinate this all back into these dashboards. So the ability to actually execute the process is incredibly accessible now. You know, shoot, an $80 transmitter, I can't imagine training an athlete anymore without a heart rate monitor because they are just so affordable. That um, Listen, shoes are more expensive than heart rate monitors. Freaking underwear sometimes are more than, I mean, you know, that's that, that's, that 50 to 80 bucks is an incredibly approachable price point. Um, and the apps are free. You know, you can monitor training load with this H10 and the Polar Beat app. You can have a whole training load system automatically. And again, it's running with memory, so you don't have to have your phone with you. Uh, you start the app, you set your phone down, and you go run, do whatever you need to do. You come back and it downloads your intensities and volumes, and you can see it. It's free, okay? So the question is, is who are, do you have interpreting the results. Do they know what to do with the numbers? Now, what the apps don't do yet, uh, Omega Wave has this thing called Windows of Trainability. It's really interesting the way they've done it. Um, I'm kind of a I'm I'm kind of a freak. Um, I want I look into the data more. I mean, we're we're collecting three and a half million data points, and I'm reviewing most of them. Um, I'm not reading them all, but I'm reviewing them somehow. We've got the data flow, so it comes back through. My HRV data that we get from Omega Wave, I want more than the simple report. I want to. I'm looking at the values, um, so I have to do a little bit more. Um, everyone's trying to get this this simple red light, green light, yellow light process. Um, it helps to have a pro interpreting that for you. And this is the technician versus the scientist or my term, the technician versus the practitioner. Yeah. The technician looks at is, is the light green, yellow, red. That's what the, I mean, you're essentially the equivalent of a, of a technical coach at that point. So, you know, your football coach can look at green, yellow, red. I mean, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Um, but the, but the clinician, the, the, the scientist looks beyond that green, yellow, red to say, okay, what are these numbers really do underline? Um, and as you start to study heart rate variability, you look at what's called the, it's, we call it SDNN, the standard deviation of the normals. Um, that, that tells you one thing, the RMSSD tells you something else. And then there's what's called frequency domain, uh, what's called low frequency, high frequency domain. And you look at those ratios, we're able to use those differently with each athlete on a daily basis to prescribe the behavior we're looking, we want to modify, um, so, um, the more you look at this, the better you get. Um, and it's, and it's, yeah, understand the science, um, understand that. I mean, take the time. If you're going to be a pro, take the time to learn the science. Um, because this stuff is not going away. This is going to become even more important as we move on. Out of curiosity, when you go to the wrestling coaches, and discuss them the with them the maladaptation. I'm assuming you don't say red, green, and yellow with the training. You're a little more advanced because they've bought into the system. Yeah, and you know what? Here's here's what's been beautiful in the last two years, and this is, I believe, if coaches have a question in their mind, do I do more or do I do less? 
they err on going to more because they're fearful of not doing enough. When you're giving your coaches feedback saying, hey, I've never told my coach they're doing too much. With the exception of that one athlete, I didn't tell them they're doing too much. I said, we need to do different things. I've never told my coaches they're doing too much. I Most of the time now, I go to my coaches and I say, hey, you've got bandwidth left. There's some work that you can do more work with these guys. You know, there's sometimes we want their numbers in the dumpster. I mean, you know, there's big training blocks where we want to beat the thunder out of them. Um, but we also put in an appropriate recovery process so that we get the super compensation and we get the benefit that we're looking for. I have yet to go to my coaches and saying, you're going too hard. I, the, my only language to them in the last two years is you've got bandwidth, but what that does is it gives the coach the confidence to say, you know what? We did good work. We're working on good stuff. I think we've done enough. I'm going to go ahead and, and, and err on the recovery side. And that's just been, that's been really cool. I'm listening to this and I know one of the hot buttons across the country is youth sports and kids specializing in a sport too young. Oh my God. <laughs> and I'm sure that would be an entire another podcast episode, but a lot of times parents are the non-experts and they listen to the coaches, which may or may not be well-educated, may or may not have the best interest of the child athletes or adolescent athletes in mind. Is this technology with the HRV and the $80 heart rate package, is this something that's useful even down to eight, nine, 10 year old athletes? Listen, when you have a bit, when a baby is born, they measure its heart rate variability. Um, so that's the first HRV measurement everyone gets. If, if you are collecting it, that it helps to have, uh, standards to look at. You know, I have a, you know, the more elite guys get, the more at data we have access to, to, to evaluate the quality and, and what are, you know, what are the standards? Um, there is in my mind, um, HRV as a readiness tool is becomes very valuable when you've worked to, to maximize all other elements of training. You have a good basic strength program in place. You have a movement program in place. You have an energy system program in place. You've identified the ability to assess and coach both technical and tactical capabilities. I, I have what's called a performance triangle that we work from. So if you think of a triangle, one arm is physical, the other arm is psychological and the base is skills. Um, so, and I have 10 elements on that triangle. And what I tell athletes is that, uh, you'll win with your best on this, but you will lose with your worst. That if, if you give a zero to 10 scale on all 10 of those items, if you're 10 to the 10th, you're a billion. Um, but if you throw a zero in on any of those, it goes to zero, um, zero to the 10th is still zero. Um, and You've got to, so this is constraint management. So you're looking at what your constraints are. So if you've got a lot of things in place and you're still getting a maladaptive response, well, you might want to start to look at the, at, at the, at the readiness portion of what you're doing. Um, now you, you, again, you just hit a hot button. There are, first of all, I am, I am a huge, as a parent, I've watched this. Um, my daughter plays lacrosse at Ohio state now and she's, you know, my daughter's six one. She weighs about two ten. She can squat four hundred pounds, and she runs with lacrosse players. She's a big physical athlete. Um, she also has a phenomenal HRV response. She recovers really, really well. Um, 
but she played, she started wrestling her first sport. She wrestled for three years, but then she played field hockey and she played travel ice hockey and she played look travel across and, and she's able to So she grew up in central Ohio and she's on a team with a bunch of elite East coast skills. Um, but because of her ability to understand the sport at a deeper level from the time, you know, she, we're having conversations about how does this hockey process work with lacrosse? What did you learn in field hockey that crosses over? Young athletes should not specialize until they're at least sophomores in high school, in my mind. Um, and you can be very strategic about it. But, the, you know, I have a good friend that's a professor out at um, University of Northern Iowa. And we were having lunch one night and he said, Mox, he says, I think kids get a decade from the time they specialize till the time they burn out. And he says, I don't have data to back this up yet. But when you start to look at some of the stuff that's coming out with uh, Erickson's work down at Florida State, you know, there's there's this is starting to take shape. And and so the issue is it's, it's not what does it take for them to be elite? But the question is, is when are you programming burnout? Um and it looks like it's about a decade. So, you know, if you specialize your kid at six years old, well, you can expect them to, you know, they'll hate the sport by the time they're ready to get their driver's license. Um, if you specialize your kid by the time they're 10 or 12, you know what, they're going to get through college and, and, um, and you've got a much different experience. So, and there's no doubt that the process that's being driven, that culture, you're establishing your culture with that behavior of specialization it's driving decisions that are being stress driven that are eventually going to drive the kid out of the sport. And so make sure that your kid, you know, make sure that your kid's able to love what they do, um, regardless of winning and losing, love the process. It's not about winning and losing. It's about loving the process. If you're, as long as they continue to love the process, they'll be okay. And this gets into twofold. First of all, it really hits the ethos of moving to live. Movement is part of what makes your life complete. But also we were chatting before we started recording and you said you can't separate the physiological from the psychological. So I think no. you've, you've really hit on that, that if no matter how talented they are or how well they're able to recover, if they don't really enjoy what they're doing, they're going to be limited in how successful they're going to be. Yeah. And if, and if there's a psychological issue, it may be driven by a maladaption at a physical level that, that I, I, I say Descartes was wrong. You know, Descartes was who described the mind body duality. There is not a duality. They are absolutely integrated. And if one is malfunctioning, it will drive the other. It abs, they go hand in hand. So, um, Again, we, we, when an athlete is struggling and when we did this athlete, when we did this athlete at Ohio state back in 2015, there were coaches that were saying, go, go to the whip, go to the whip, go to the whip. Well, they had gone to the whip and, 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 um, it did not work. Um, so, you know, give Tom Ryan credit for saying, okay, we need to do something different. And that's how we got involved. But, um, those two things are, are intimately related Listen, down, and this goes, listen, this is why we need physical education in schools. We need lifetime daily physical activity in schools because physical movement drives brain-derived BDNF production, which drives the catalyzation of, of the neurological process in the brain for learning. Um, these things are critical, and, um, and you've got to keep them, you've, you cannot separate them. 
We're talking with Don Moxley. Don is a specialist in biomonitoring and a sports scientist at the Ohio State University Wrestling. The final aspect I want to touch on, we've talked a little bit about youth athletes, and clearly you have opinions that are similar to mine. We've talked about dealing with uh, high-level college athletes, which I think can also transform over towards professional athletes or Olympic-level athletes. What about the weekend warrior who enjoys running, cycling, or they're involved in a high-quality or a high-intensity business? Is this something that monitoring things without a coach can be beneficial to them and help them potentially improve either their amateur athletic performance or their job performance? Well, the the long and short is is your your stress system and your body does not differentiate physical stress from mental stress from environmental stress it just recognizes stress um and it responds accordingly um so if if you have a cognitive job and you are under stress the same way athletes make better decisions when they're recovered all humans at all levels make better decisions when they're recovered. Um, students in schools that are staying up till four in the morning, studying, and then getting up at six and going back to school, there's no recovery there. Academic performance will not be optimized. Um, athletic performance doesn't fit this. I We were talking earlier, I had a friend that was a strength coach at a major basketball program in the U.S., and we were at a conference probably 10, 15 years ago, and he was talking about the 6 a.m. workouts that they did with the guys. And I personally am not a fan of 6 a.m. workouts. That's a whole other story. But um, because and then he sat there and he said, said, listen, these guys, I know these guys are coming in. They're going to bed at 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning. We're getting them up at 5.45. Their facility was right across the street from where they slept. They have no nutritional support coming through the workout. And I said – then why are you doing it? And his answer was, because that's what I get paid to do. And if you view your role as a taskmaster, um, then, then so be it. But the output is not going to be optimized. And I'm not saying that you let the kids sleep in till 10 and, and, and you, but you work on fixing the behavior that needs fixed, you know, have the athlete recognize that the decision to extend their go to bed time extends their recover, you know, extends their recovery availability, and they have to make the decision: Am I going to be a social person or am I going to be an athlete? But it's their decision at that point. But they've got good data to make that decision with. If you're able to make that decision, all of a sudden, whether you do one set, two sets, five sets, fifty sets, is is becomes relevant because you got someone who can adapt to it. Um, so. That same process applies to humans at all levels. And when we start looking at the stuff that we're dealing with in our society, the way stress impacts, it's, um, it's, it's relevant at all levels to answer the question. Relative or relevant at all levels. And from what you're describing for $80 or so, you can start to acquire the tools to measure it. It's accessible. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan. You know, there's one of the kids I work with, uh, we were talking about it and, um, he says, Oh, I can measure my heart rate with my phone. Um, I'm not a huge fan right now of industry, non industry devices like phones and things like that, that measure heart rate. I, you know, I, I have an Apple watch, but I, the heart rate that comes off it in my mind is junk. 
Um, if you want a good heart rate, spend a couple bucks, get a transmitter that's measuring the electrical signal. That's a really clean signal that you can do something with. There's some, there's some research coming out that's showing the fingertip style measurement through a process that's called photoplasmography or PPG. That's getting a lot better. And there's some people in the industry that are developing some specialized tools that are tuned for this. Um, that's getting better. But for right now, I recommend that you get a heart rate transmitter. Uh, again, it's, and again, that polar, those two polar products fit really well. Um, but the apps on the phone are really, really good. Great advice from Don Moxley. Don is the sports scientist for the Ohio State University wrestling team. He is also a specialist in body monitoring. I think if you get on his website, which we'll have info in the show notes and do a Google search for some of the other podcasts and blog posts that he's written, you'll find out that he has information that is not only interesting, but applicable across the lifespan. And I'm looking forward to taking advantage of it. Don, I want to thank you for taking some time and talking to moving to live. It's been very interesting and I appreciate the time. Oh, it's my, it's my pleasure. This is, uh, this is stuff I love to do. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of moving to live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is traveling light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.